Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our critic series, I am joined by my friend Jeff Schulenberger. We'll be talking wildly and widely about the noir, about erotic thrillers, about the strange identities we find in our social transformation since the 80s, and the quest for what does it mean to be a real woman, a theme that is, of course, much in the discourse and which we will be addressing through cinema, through the reflections of writers and directors who range from the brilliant to the salacious. Jeff, thanks a lot for doing this. It was a great idea. I'm glad to hear that you're interested in this sort of thing. Please introduce yourself to our audience. Absolutely. Yeah. So first of all, thanks so much for having me. My name is Jeff Schulenberger. You can find me on Twitter at daily underscore barbarian and also at Outsider Theory. And Outsider Theory is also my podcast and blog. It's about several things, including the permutations of academic theories of various sorts when they escape academia and circulate in other realms, including the internet. It's also about conspiracy theories and about the outsider as a sort of cultural figure, which I imagine we'll get into somewhat in relation to the noir genre. Actually, as I've been building this outsider theory project, my sort of nighttime activity has been watching lots of 80s and 90s neo-noir movies, which has been great fun and has both reintroduced me to some favorites and also helped me discover some new favorites. This is a topic I've just been really thinking about and enjoying a lot in the past year or so. So like a noir protagonist, you have found yourself disaffected and looking for love in the wrong places, let's say. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) All right, Jeff, since we're moving from chatting to podcasting, from private to public, I have to introduce our audience to our secret thoughts. How does psychiatry make monsters instead of making us wise about human things? You pointed me for our conversation to Hitchcock and, of course, his most famous student, Brian De Palma. This is the right place to begin, I think, for our conversation about erotic thrillers in neo-noir, because these are the directors who thought longest and hardest about this problem. What if it's the poets, the movie directors, not the scientists or shrinks who know what's really going on inside of us? And there's something funny about the way they make this claim, because they take something from the claims of science, split personality diagnosis, and turn it instead into a storytelling, into a form of poetry. The split personality helps us understand our divided lives in liberalism. To take three quick examples, first Hitchcock's Psycho in 1960, this is the first time we see evil deeds, and then... After a movie full of these shocks, we see a shrink come up to explain away wickedness as though he could go back in time and fix everything, as though reality were merely a psychological experiment. No reason to worry, no reason to fear. And Hitchcock shows us how skeptical he is of such psychoanalytical nonsense, but also worried that we might fall for it. Second, The Palma, Dressed to Kill 1980. This is the first time he shows what he learned from Psycho specifically, not just from Hitchcock in general. He gives us a shock here by taking the next step. In this case, the shrink himself is the murderer. It's as though Norman Bates and the shrink are put together in one character. And on the one hand, this means creating a monster, but on the other hand, he's an agent of justice. The Palma lifts the veil of scientific authority from this guy, his protagonist, played so well by Michael Caine. And what do we see? Well, madness is what's beneath that veil. But but just when this happens, we have to ask, is this guy even guilty if he is mad? Doesn't this mean maybe he's just not part of society anymore? And also that maybe society has made him mad in the first place, because the rapid changes in the relations between men and women have simply made the mess of desire and moral interdiction and public proprieties. And so what it even means to be a good person is not obvious anymore. Try too hard, it might make you go crazy. Third, Raising Cain, 1992. Here, the Palma takes Hitchcock's psycho to its ultimate conclusion. The evil murderer, this time played by John Lithgow, is not a shrink, but the son of a shrink. That is, he's the result of a new scientific power-mad vision of humanity. This is some kind of attempt to take control of what we are as human beings from earliest childhood. This again goes back to psycho and the idea that Norman Bates from childhood was slowly driven mad. What if it could be programmed instead? Psychiatry is now revealed to have a dark side. The Palma isn't worried anymore about the way we give authority to psychiatry, the way this might create a terrible pretense. He's moved on to a situation where society has already done this, 
and he's looking at the consequences. Once we accept psychiatry, a new education must come, and that turns out to be experimenting on the children. So instead of tragic heroes, in these kinds of movies, in these thrillers or horrors, you get new evils devised by new evil protagonists. Michael Caine in Dress to Kill is especially interesting because he seems very bourgeois, respectable. He's an educated guy, gainfully employed, attractive, and further, in a crazy way, he seems to embody what's needed to protect the bourgeoisie from the consequences of the sexual revolution. He does horrifying things to people who have modernized, especially women seeking liberation. And so, at first glance, Michael Caine seems to embody the contradictions of this new society. Yes, and it's unclear what the nature of his responsibility for his crimes is. And then similarly in Raising Cain, you have a variation of the same scenario, but in that case you have it even more explicit in that John Lithgow is clearly a victim of this monstrous father, right, who sort of turned him into an experimental subject. And so his actions are, in a sense, an extension of that. One thought I had with De Palma's work is the way that that's, on one hand, it's a bogus diagnosis, but on the other hand, it's an incredibly good framing device for films, and it works very well in the way he uses it as a plot device. I think that's right. The split personality is the starkest way to look at the split between public and private that's typical of our society, right? You don't know people. What goes on behind closed doors? Who knows? It also is not merely a problem of liberal society, because after all, the liberal arrangement is only a version of the public-private divide that is fundamental. The American Constitution contemplates persons, citizens. It never says something about men and women having sex, having children, and then, like, you know, your old parents are old and now you need to take care of them. It does not contemplate pre-political or apolitical realities. But, of course, that's the ground on which it's built. Who knows if America can survive, say, if the birth rates fall enough? Who knows? It's never been contemplated. It was simply assumed that there would be a steady supply of Americans. The Constitution is worried about how to make Americans American citizens. It is not worried about how to make Americans in the first place. And yet, you know, that could turn out to be a problem. So there's always some kind of pre-political psychology that you have to deal with. And so that is involved in these shocking disparities, because in being split, neither half of the split is clean, so to speak. The split personalities both have something right and wrong to them. Like people committing murders often enough have a good reason to do it. It's not as simple as that. And of course, some good reasons to kill should be illegal anyway. But still, the split isn't simple. It's not like saying that, well, yeah, but you find out in the movie that the real truth was the other personality, which was hidden at first. Sort of like a, you know, a Marxist allegory. You thought you were free, but you're a slave. It's not that simple. And that, I think, ties to the other thing you suggested, that all of these things reflect on the impersonation typical of works of art. Split personality is too cute, it's too neat as a way of thinking about human beings, but it's a necessity of art. All works of art have to give it to you this view of things or that view of things. This is how it's presented. It's all made up. And being made up, it has a spurious order. In a movie, everything has to add up. At the end of it, okay, it was all planned. Even if there are accidents in a story, the accidents also were planned. And so it has a spurious relationship to the character of not only experience, but, you know, thinking and being. It's too neat. But it's a necessary entrance, it would seem, because it reflects this worry of late liberalism that maybe we are not sane after all. And if we are not sane, what are we? But you could say that maybe in the 80s this notion came around that maybe what makes us who we are is that we're sexual beings. Maybe people aren't rational. Maybe people aren't social or progressive. Maybe what makes people people is that we're sexually obsessive, unlike other species. That tends to be a comic insight. In a comedy, you reveal that, you know, everybody lives for the sake of sex in some sense, and everybody thinks it's good, but everybody's ashamed of it being done in public. It reveals this weird character of shame, that you could be ashamed of something you like, or indeed something that is good or natural, as opposed to, say, being ashamed of being a loser or failing at something or committing a crime. You could be ashamed of doing the right thing the right way. That's this weird comic insight. That maybe being human is essentially being sexual, because all the other beings have limits on their sexuality, but not people. But this is not comic. This is a fairly tragic treatment. <laughs> This makes me think of something else I've noticed in relation to this motif of the split personality, which is that often the murderous and violent side of the split personality actually functions as a kind of moral enforcer or avenger. I mean, going back to Hitchcock, 
Psycho is sort of the first instance of this idea. What's wonderful about Psycho is you have this accidental conjunction of these two trajectories, right? On one hand, you have the character who's fled with the money, who's doing this in order to, you know, make this romantic fulfillment possible, right? So she's committed this moral transgression um, in order to achieve a kind of sexual satisfaction or fulfillment. Interestingly, through her conversation with Norman, she comes to regret her decision and she decides to return the money back. It's precisely at that point that Norman in his alter ego, Mrs. Bates mode, comes in and murders her. And then you have the wonderful thing where the car is pushed into the water and the money just sinks. Um, She almost gets away with this temporary transgression because presumably she could go back, return the money, and maybe it would never be noticed. So the function of Mrs. Bates at that point is to ensure that the moral order is enforced in the most extreme and aggressive way. So it's interesting when De Palma brings in these kinds of characters, like in Dress to Kill, you have the woman who has the abrupt and weird sexual liaison with the guy she randomly meets, and then is immediately you know, murdered in a way that's pretty reminiscent of the psycho example. So you have this kind of function of the second personality, which is the executioner figure who exacts the most extreme retribution against whatever the transgression is that the character has committed. So you have this figure who's on one hand transgressive, but on the other hand is exacting maximal punishment for transgressions. So there's kind of a weird coincidence of opposites. That's right. I don't know if you've ever read tragedy, but the foundation of law and order in Athens is given in the Oresteia of Eschylos. And indeed, it ends up with the Furies, and the Furies double up as the kindly ones. So the place called Eumenides. But of course, that's because they're domesticated for political purposes. You can't have a city without justice. But what they correspond to would seem to be something terrifying. Again, you'd get somewhat more of this in Euripides' why women are tied up with madness. They're less political or they're more natural. But that's also the case in Aeschylus. Aeschylus is kind of a conservative, a patriot. Euripides is a liberal. He is uh, not much of a patriot. And they do have an identity on this woman problem. So, for example, the Furies are said to be sleeping. And this lady, Clytemnestra, who is now dead, the wife of Agamemnon, who she wakes them up to take vengeance for her. This lady, Clytemnestra, who is the one character in all the three tragedies of Dorestaya, appears even dead to wake up the Furies. It's a funny thing to think about, that the Furies could sleep. So this woman is sort of more furious than the Furies. She's said to think like a man, because that's the only way men can think that this woman has a good political judgment. She's actually been a ruler for a decade. While the husband was away waging war, somebody had to run the city. And so she's this super competent woman also doubles up as a crazy murderer. And in her, you see for the first time this possibility of the identity in politics of something that's chaotic, comes from before nature. And on the other hand, the requirements of the city for self-protection, for autonomy. That is sort of like what you were saying about the identity of punishment and transgression. Execution and transgression seems to come from the fact that justice always comes up short. The law has to deal with that fact. But what does it mean to deal with that fact? It means to acknowledge at some level that neither experience nor politics can work like a story. And that can never be separated from human activity with respect to justice because it's somehow necessary to hide the fact that justice always comes too late. And that has to be hidden because if it cannot be hidden, then you cannot be made whole again. Justice is supposed to make you whole, to restore you. You can end up in one of these two situations that you can call conservative and liberal. With the with liberals, it turns out that they only care about criminals, not about victims. They're big on rehabilitation, for example. So a liberal is one who say, look, this guy, he was a murderer, but through, you know, whatever, he became a decent, helpful member of society. Okay, how about the victim? Fuck him. How about the family of the victim who now has to see this spectacle <laughs> that the, the murderer has turned into a hero and something to be proud of? Well, they don't get a say. Conservatives start the other way around. They tend to be for punishment so that we can all put it behind us. Somebody has to be found guilty because the moment the murder was announced, you know, the moment the moral order was deranged, the fact that it's natural for this to happen started scaring us. And I don't want to live with that drama. I want to live with some comfort, with some ease. 
I would like to think even of Fury as the kindly ones. Say, you know, hello, Mr. Officer, nice to see you. Cops, they eat donuts. It's so funny. The, the people who go around killing people have to be funny, fat, uh, slow bastards. It's helpful because you cannot acknowledge that disturbing the moral order is fundamental to human beings, that politics is never so well arranged that it will arrange itself. In fact, it tends to come to our view when something bad happens. And ultimately, I think you can see this contradiction, the, the coincidence of opposite that you're talking about in the phenomenon of justice, right? The beautiful is known by the beautiful. Justice does not have that character. It has the opposite character. Justice is always announced by injustice. It's, hey, you can't treat me that way. Who the hell do you think you are? What do you take me for? Or like, even if it's not your problem and you're not that indignant, you say, well, somebody ought to make a law. Somebody ought to do something about this. In anger, you see that fundamental identity of injustice and justice. That's because justice always comes second, and politics as such always comes second. It has to be established, it has to be installed, and since it has to be, how much are you really going to trust it? It wasn't always there, or it's not permanently there, or it's not simply there. It does not have the character of unchangeable things, like water will wet you and fire will burn. So that has to be dealt with somehow, and the conservative opinion is that you should hide that fact. And the liberal opinion is that you should pretend that it can be fixed. The conservative will point to the fact that, I mean, if you look around, people are not hiding, <laughs> that they're crazy. So we need really harsh, strong order. Keep a lid on this. And that's all true. The liberal points instead to the progress in the arts and sciences. People today have air conditioning, moon rockets. This did not exist 300 years ago or 100 years ago. We're progressing. Eventually, we'll get past the human problem. You're not going to have this whole, you know, rape and murder stuff anymore. It's obsolete or being obsolete. You can point to the darker side or you can point to the more progressive side, but both of them are reactions to the same problem. The installation of justice and politics is not primordial. It comes later. Progress is a necessary delusion, right? It seems like it's only in these sorts of uh, horrifying movies that this can be brought up again because it's where, you know, everybody's agreed that this stuff is shocking. You can't just massage it. You can't just pretend it's not there. Like, you know, the ending of Psycho, there's a small town in California, but they already have the liberal therapeutic order present, right? The murderer fools that loser psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist fools these people. And only the audience can see that, oh my God, this murderer is going to get away with it. These are small town parochial people. This guy's a collegiate psychiatrist with the authoritative speech. So they're very different, like conservative and liberal America. But they are agreed. Why is this the lie that these people feel the need to believe? Well, in the case of the psychiatrist, he gets to play act that he's in control of things. But why do the townspeople want to believe him? Because the evil had been happening under their eyes. Nobody gave a shit about Norman Bates before he became a monster. Where were they? And so they can get rid of guilt. This psychiatrist is looking to install ultimately a certain kind of therapeutic tyranny, as you see in reality, right? I mean, this was just American reality, that at some point psychiatry becomes a part of law and order. And in the courts of law, you have this sort of supposed expertise that's going to decide what's just and what's not. So, you know, it's real. I mean, if you see the people, they have powerful motives to be doing what they're doing that have to do with their beliefs and their way of life, then you could understand what justice requires here. But you'd have to sort of piece it from the pieces that these people have mangled because of their different partisanships and their guilt. These people know they're guilty in what has happened. All communities know they are guilty when something like this has happened. That's why they want something done about it. But you have a new upshot in uh, Psycho, this fact that people might fall for this, that it's very tempting to believe in psychiatry. It will allow you to shift guilt to medicalize wickedness and therefore to privatize justice, essentially. So you don't even need to do your job anymore. Hitchcock didn't make horrors before that. The most obvious explanation is that he didn't think it was strictly speaking necessary. But with Psycho, you can put evil in people's faces. They will not see it. If it shocks them, they will explain it away with therapy. The way it ends, it shows you that horror in a way is necessary to bring up this problem, but apparently it can't even address it. What's going to happen once we've noticed? We're going to blink. We're going to look the other way is what we're going to do. Somehow we're becoming blind to fundamental phenomena that have to be brought up again in very shocking stories. This is also making me think about a feature of Hitchcockian noir is that the role of the police is almost always that they're either useless and defective or worse, right? They actually become the antagonist of the person who's seeking some sort of justice and so you have characters who are cops like Scotty and Vertigo, right, who are sort of defective cops. Or, I mean, it seemed like everyone was trying to remake Vertigo in the 90s. 
my opinion is the best is Basic Instincts. But there you have a different sort of useless cop figure in Michael Douglas, who she refers to a shooter, right? Whereas Scotty is kind of this impotent cop who's incapable of fulfilling his duty and, you know, lets his partner die as a result. Michael Douglas in Basic Instinct is sort of this excessive cop who's overly aggressive and sort of overly vigilant in fulfilling his duties. So he's sort of the law spilling out into some kind of violent excess. So, you know, those seem like opposite versions of the same problem, right? Which is the defectiveness of order of sort of moral enforcement embodied in the police. And then we can think about various other movies where there are different variations on this. but And they have in common that the bad guy gets away with it in both Vertigo and Basic Instinct. Exactly. This whole genre is precisely the space where the sort of legal enforcement embodied and sort of moral enforcement embodied in the police is in some ways suspended or its, its limitations are revealed. And then there's sort of this renegotiation in the absence of any effective enforcement of that sort. And then the other thing that, that I was thinking of is sort of an Aristophanes theme, which is that it's always the war of the sexes in some sense, right? The police are in some way inadequate to regulate that primordial conflict that is exposed in these films where, you know, you have this fundamental antagonism between the type of power embodied in male and female. And, and in fact, when it attempts to intervene in that, it's usually useless and incapable of, of sort of adjudicating it. Yeah, the presence of the police reveals that this is an order that simply doesn't understand the ground it's standing on. You're policing the lives of men and women, but you don't know what men and women are. It seems like if they do anything from this point of view, what they're busy doing is protecting society from the knowledge of what men and women are. Sometimes they have to hide stuff for corrupt political purposes. Sometimes they just don't get it. But whether culpable or just stupid, either way, that's the purpose they serve, to protect the public from knowing the ugly truth about human beings. That must be, in in a broad sense, true. That is, we do have legal political order that doesn't grasp much about the problems of human nature. So you have this situation where, in one sense, we're very able to manage the situation. Liberal democracy is pretty successful. But on the other hand, if you ask, you know, what is happening with people? then all of a sudden you hear or see stuff that's very startling. And so somehow these two things have to be put together. But, you know, in the genre, it's what a murder reveals. It seems like if you look at it from that point of view, you can figure out, as you said, you know, what is male power, what is female power. You know, you can't even see why would the liberal order have been created in the first place, except, as I said, in this broad sense, to hide it, put a lid on the crazy stuff. You can't make people sane but you can at least prevent the insanity from leading to certain trouble. You can, to some extent, prevent crime. You cannot prevent madness. And so the madness comes out only in storytelling. But then storytelling doesn't have that much importance in a liberal regime. So the only people who know what they're talking about are, by general agreement, disconsidered. I think specifically the everyday madness of sexuality, the madness that is not exceptional but normal, And that's something that, in a sense, this order can't and doesn't want to know anything about. If I had to provide a rationale for why I'm kind of interested in um, this sort of neo-noir revival and from the 80s stretching into, I guess, the early 2000s, in terms of social history, it's as if noir sort of bookends the post-war era of prosperity. In both cases, you have this attempt to negotiate shifting relations between men and women. You know, the original noir period is heavily associated with men going off to war and then women entering the workforce because of that. And then the kind of renegotiation that follows that. And so men going off to war, but at the same time having to be anxious about what's going on in their absence. And then when they come back, having to renegotiate their roles after that disruption. You know, the sort of psychic underpinnings of the genre and the way that it's premised on this male anxiety about the uncanny powers of female sexuality. It seems like that is generally understood to be where it first kind of emerges out of and what it speaks to as a genre. 
And then you get to the 80s and 90s and you have a similar shift underway. The characters you have in that period are, again, these kind of erratic, sort of anxious males. On one hand, excessively violent and erratic in that way, but at the same time, strangely blind and easily overpowered by female sexuality, unable to assert mastery of a situation. So if you think about that character, it's like his violence and excess in that area is symptomatic of his kind of erratic lack of mastery and genuine control. So you have these male characters who just express this problem of how to renegotiate the relations between the sexes amidst these social shifts where women are rising in status and competing with men for roles in the workplace. I mean, on one hand, you know, these films offer a very stylized rendering of that. On the other hand, there's an incredible rawness to the way they depict it as a problem. And the kind of seething, you know, madness, as you said, that's <laughs> that's sort of provoked by this situation. Looking at this from the post-Me Too moment, where you really have a narrative that's suddenly asserted that is really an attempt to put a lid on this entire problem and essentially deny the very thing that the noir movie repeatedly asserts, which is the power associated with female sexuality. And so what the Me Too movement, which of course comes out of Hollywood, does is completely sweep that dimension of the dynamic under the rug and assert this narrative of pure victimization in which women are completely without agency and the sort of playthings of these grotesque ogre-like men. And I would say with that being now the sort of dominant cultural narrative promulgated by Hollywood itself, this type of movie is in a sense unimaginable. It's a glimpse at a way of of imagining relations between the sexes that's been almost entirely suppressed. And that's why these films to me seem much older than they are, because it's strange how recent that kind of depiction was possible, given how impossible it seems now. Yeah, I think that's true. And this is one reason I mentioned that Lady Gillian Flynn, I've not read her novel, so I don't know much about this stuff. But it did strike me that she had a big moment with Gone Girl. And there was a lot of this stuff, especially in the media, about what a strong woman really is. That somehow to be a real woman, you have to kill men. That is, they somehow you have to take it out on the system and in some way embrace the trashy pomo art where instead of having Perseus with the head of Medusa, you have a naked Medusa with the head of Perseus. Something like that level of thinking. But surely that has a lot of public support that has a lot to do with how the upper middle class looks at life. And it has a lot to do with the fact that since the 80s, women have dominated the university first in undergrad numbers, then also postgrad numbers, then also in the order of things that will happen in the faculties, administration, everywhere. That's the character of the system. This is not an accident, it's a rolling transformation. In the 80s and the 90s, this was shown largely from the perspective of, as you're saying, anxious men, men who are afraid of what this changing situation means. You know, in the 80s, I think the biggest genre was action movies, and the common denominator of the action movies was that these were all marginal men. All the manliness had to do with the fact that unless you're outside of society, you can't be a man in America. I think there's always a lot of this stuff in popular phenomena. They do reveal quite an adequate grasp, certainly much better grasp than the elite opinion class has of what's actually going on in society. Of course, you could look at the 80s from the other point of view of women succeeding. You have these two kinds of pictures of women succeeding. On one hand, there's these weird thrillers that have been around for almost 20 years now, like the trilogy with the girl with the dragon tattoo that was partly remade in America as well, or the girl on the train, or the girl in the something else. I mean, like there's all of these, as you were saying, women without agency who then have to be boss girls to go from being raped to doing the raping in some way. Or you have the superhero movies. Now it's Ghostbusters, but they're women. That's a symbolic emasculation. Now they're whatever, but they're women. Star Wars is now women and all of these things, it's now women. And that sort of symbolic emasculation is supposed to be heartfelt, moralistic. Women superheroes may be sarcastic, but their heart is in the right place. There's that version of corporate America, like these ads for the CIA or the army with the women, the new society. 
Or, as we were saying, these dark stories of women being sexless and terrified of male violence. Somehow sex is male, eroticism is male as such, and eroticism therefore must be eliminated from life. And, and that shows, right? I mean, what you see in the, like in the Marvel superhero movies where you have strong, independent women, tight fit in those latex suits, all those movies are sexless. There's never any erotic anything. Like, that's surely as intentional as this other picture of women who are vulnerable, weak, who have been terrified out of sexuality. Individualism and capitalism have advanced a further step. They're done with men. Now they're dealing with women. The hero of capitalism or the liberal order is a woman now. I think you get the picture in these thrillers of why women are more compliant. They're more scared. But to look at things that way is to, as you say, desexualize women. And I think that points to two things. One of them is, of course, that people aren't really having sex anymore, if studies are to be believed or, you know, our gut feelings. And there's birth dearth. The desexualization of women in movies is about hiding the fact that women might give birth. But also the need to look at what does this society look like if its engine is women. If women are supposed to dominate, say, the middle management, upper middle class of society, what kind of world will that be? If the culture is feminized, the bureaucracy is feminized, etc. It's got to be neurotic based on this combination of helplessness and the kind of resentment. This rise of women to the domination of elite institutions is tied up with the Great Awakening. Not with a literature or a culture or arts that glorify women. You know, maybe glorify the sexless woman or the woman who has frozen her eggs or like whatever people would believe is the future. But that doesn't happen, strangely enough. Instead, you get pictures of, you know, in what world is woman dominant in in a world where women are pretty messed up and miserable. And it's odd to build that on the basis of overcoming the past. Maybe women have inherited the misery that men had to deal with. Men used to be the symbol of democracy and, you know, the public ordering of politics. All the presidents are men. And so they had to deal with the fact that, like you were saying about World War II, be a man, be a patriot, go fight for your country. And it turns out that if you do that, the result of it is that you've lost your place in your social order at home. And now that anxiety is felt by women in some sense. And it seems like it nevertheless corresponds to, in, to some extent the distinction between men and women that these women's stories are about having no private life, are about being empty inside. Like they sacrificed a lot to be successful feminist women or whatever, and they might have sacrificed themselves in the process. Yeah, and this is bringing me back to, I know you haven't seen it, but as I mentioned, uh, I recently saw The Woman in the Window which is very much explicitly trying to position itself in the lineage that we've been discussing, in that you have endless visual homages to Hitchcock. The Amy Adams main character is watching various Hitchcock movies in different moments of the film, and she's this kind of shut-in who is agoraphobic. You know, she's in the position of the Jimmy Stewart character in Rear Window, That's the most obvious way that the movie is a kind of Hitchcock remake. What seems important for this War of the Sexes dynamic in these original, you know, in these, um, both the original noir and the neo-noir films is that part of the male protagonist's anxiety is really the specter of a woman who has a kind of power that he can never possess. That the woman's power is clearly, in every sense, superior to his. And this is why he's constantly thwarted and in some sense on his heels throughout all of these movies, right? And to the extent that he can overcome that, it's either through (laughs) basically killing her off or succumbing, you know, as in basic instinct, essentially coming to some kind of truce with her. So in any case, what's interesting about Woman in the Window is you have this female protagonist. She's a shut-in. She originally is ostensibly separated from her family. Spoiler alert, her family are actually dead because she killed them in a car accident. Now, there's this weird, um, I hope you don't mind my spoiling all the twists, but (laughs) there's this weird um, backstory where she allegedly had an affair with someone else and then was kind of in the process of probably splitting up with her husband and then she basically kills her husband and child in a car accident, right? So she's left alone with agoraphobia. She's completely de-sexed. And she's basically a sort of wine mom without kids, sitting at home, spying on her neighbors and drinking and taking prescription meds, 
right? So that's basically the premise. But what's weird is that at the beginning, she's having these fake conversations with her family. So it's almost like her family only exists as a fantasy anyway. So in any case, she's single, sexless woman drinking and taking pills, right? So she's basically the woman on the cover of that issue of The New Yorker. She's kind of the universal subject of the present. She's also allegedly a child psychologist. So her whole involvement in the lives of her neighbors is premised on this idea that she's concerned about their child. Like they have a teenage boy who she sort of befriends and ostensibly she's concerned about him. She thinks it might be an abusive household. And then she thinks she witnesses the murder of the wife, right? Who she thinks is murdered by the husband, played by Gary Oldman, right? The wife is Julianne Moore. So we do have this Hitchcockian kind of doubling, right? Because we have Julianne Moore turn up, briefly make friends with her, then seemingly get murdered. She witnesses it, but she's in a haze of drinking and pills and Hitchcock movies. So she's not, you know, so the cops are useless and don't believe her. Then meanwhile, the second wife turns up. So we have what should be a sort of interesting sort of love triangle, you know, of interestingly sort of quintessential Gen X actors, right? Gary Oldman, Jennifer Jason Leigh, and Julianne Moore, right? Which are a fantastic constellation of actors, in my opinion. But what's strange is that they're really terribly underused because mostly what we get is just this woman alone in her house in this kind of (laughs) drug and wine induced hallucinatory haze. And it's always like unclear what's actually going on across the street and to what extent we can trust her impressions of it. So I guess the way I would read it is like, we have this woman who's, you know, in a sense, this universal subject, she's de-sexed, she's a shut-in, she's a femcell. You know, my sense is for the movie, they made Amy Adams as unattractive as possible. I think they made her like gain some weight and just, they made her as frumpy as possible. You know, so she's the opposite of a noir protagonist. And then we have these other female figures played by Jennifer Jason Lee and Julianne Moore, who are kind of, on one hand, more sexualized, but on the other hand, are sort of over the hill. So basically we have this movie that's completely evacuated of the sort of potent female sexuality that defines the whole genre we've been talking about. So we have this attempt to kind of play with all of these tropes and motifs of the genre, but fundamentally absent from it is the basic driving libidinal force of it. You have to have a femme fatale figure. So what we have is kind of this constellation of these older characters who are kind of all past their prime to some extent. And then we have nobody in the middle, right? We have nobody who's in their sexual prime in the film. And instead what we have is a sort of Gen Z teenager who is initially presented as maybe slightly autistic, which is also very appropriate, and very kind of pathetic and vulnerable. It turns out that he's the killer. He's the kind of cold-blooded psychopath who, to the extent that anyone's in control of what's going on in this film, it's him. So it turns out that agency is located with the sort of 16-year-old autistic kid, right? Who, you know, is presented throughout the film as this victim who's in need of protection from the deficient maternal figure of Amy Adams. It turns out as this kind of dead-eyed psychopath but whose psychopathy is itself oddly derivative because it seems as if he's trying to become a serial killer in order to achieve some kind of autistic, a sort of pop culture image of serial killers, right? So he's like, he's a serial killer, but he hasn't decided what his trademark mode of killing is yet. It's a very odd film. It has all of the motifs and aesthetic touches of the genre we've been discussing, but the sort of central dynamic that is the sort of driving force of this type of film has been totally evacuated from it. It's been desexualized, and the agency for it has been turned over to this kind of autistic teenager. And so in a sense, I think that explains the nature of its aesthetic engagement with the genre, which is just this kind of pure play with signifiers, right? It's just like, all right, let's take this genre and just kind of stitch together a series of references, but without any overt rejection of what I would take to be the sort of thematic core that defines it. 
so anyway, that's my <laughs> that's my little take on Woman in the Window, which again I know you haven't seen, but and I'm not sure I recommend it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I want to watch it. it. The trailer looked quite boring, but there's something of interest in the stuff you're saying about this, right? A woman trying to get rid of her family and finding, on the other hand, that without family she is nothing, has no life, is a kind of description of second wave feminism. Right, that women don't have an authentic self, they are second sex because they're in fact by society forced to identify themselves as wives and mothers, not as individuals. And so you see this woman in a state of individuation, she can't do it. There's no there there, there's no self. And also the other suggestion that she was maybe looking to get rid of the husband and family anyway, to be free. In some sense, the accidental death is wish fulfillment. So a lot of that makes sense actually. And in a way, even this odd situation with the two younger characters who are crazy in different ways, she pretends to be a caring substitute mother, kind of busybody that makes for the nanny state, whereas the guy looks for some kind of celebrity, some kind of work of art. Doesn't that make sense for men and women? So some of these things do seem to add up. Even the older actors who are the main interest, if you don't see them well, that's partly because, as you said, these are touchstones of another generation. And what can you do? They're gone. They're, as you said, over the hill. So you make the film seem more interesting than I had considered first. I'll give this some thought, but I am not watching this stuff. It looks god-awful. Yeah, it's... It's really quite bad, but it is. it just resonated with my thoughts about this genre that we've been talking about and, in a sense, ratified this idea of the impossibility of this genre today. Interestingly, you could imagine the story of the people across the street as a kind of 90s story, right? Which is basically that you have Gary Oldman as a successful guy, but who has had a kid with a crazy woman. I mean, she only appears really in one scene in the movie, but you could sort of imagine her as maybe a more conventional noir sort of figure because he basically he's had this child with her and then she's gone off the rails and he's had to kind of sweep her under the rug. I mean, in a sense, she's a kind of mad woman in the attic type figure. She's this kind of image of feminine excess. And then he's remarried Jennifer Jason Lee, who's much more enigmatic, but who I think of in relation to movies like single white female, right, where she's this kind of creepy, obsessive. And so you could imagine a very interesting drama, which would be centered around the mutual obsession of Jennifer Jason Lee and Julianne Moore, right, as sort of enemies and rivals for the love of the Gary Oldman character. So you could imagine that as a 90s, as a sort of Gen X 90s movie, where you have this rivalry over the love of a man and also who's really the mother of this child. You have these movies from that period, single white female being one, fatal attraction and so on, where you have this kind of violent sexual rivalry. There's a movie within the movie of Woman in the Window, which is, in a sense, the plot that she's trying to construct um, as she voyeuristically observes her neighbors. But it's like she doesn't even have the imagination to do that. And instead, it becomes this plot about her need to protect this child from the sort of evil, violent patriarch. And then it turns out she's completely deluded about that because it's in fact the child who's the, who's the violent psychopath <laughs> and, and also whose parents can't keep him under control, right? And whose parents are, are protecting him from the consequences of his own actions, like good liberals, going back to what you said. So, so in fact, the whole thing is kind of about the failures of these nice liberals in the face of this sort of violent, psychopathic teenager, who's again, really the only, the only character with agency in the film, right? Who actually sets out to do something and does something and, and the other characters are merely reacting to him. So I don't know, there's something there that's extremely interesting <laughs> as a sort of allegory of our moment. Yeah, I think that's right. It is sort of like a noir if you take the eroticism out of it. What is left of the noir? I guess the crime is still left. It's still possible to want to kill people, but for somewhat different reasons. But yeah, it seems far less interesting in a way and far less human. It seems like there are parts of humanity that have disappeared in the process. In that sense, even the patriarchy is an act of nostalgia. Wouldn't it be nice to have these old patriarchic men around to blame them? Well, all that's gone. You know, it's interesting in this that you have this kind of excess of adults but all of them are useless, right, in the face of this child, right? None of them know how to control him. In fact, they are controlled by him. 
you know, on one hand, you have too many parents and too few children, but these parents are incapable of actually functioning as parents because they're either fixated on this fantasy of his innocence and vulnerability, or they're kind of just cleaning up the messes that he makes. I mean, I was thinking about this in relation to like the role of children in the sort of or lack thereof in the noir genre, right? You have often this Hitchcock figure is always the sort of childless bachelor. It is often this genre that deals with these characters who are kind of incapable or unwilling to kind of integrate into the sort of reproductive sexuality of the society. Or this is related to the fact that they're drawn into these imbroglios involving these kinds of overly sexualized female characters, right? Yeah, I think that's true. It goes back to the detective origins of the genre. Sam Spade in The Maltese Falcon or Fred McMurray in Double Indemnity. All of these guys are bachelors. I can think of minor exceptions, you know, men who put their marriage on the line, who really risk losing a family. There are such noirs. But primarily it does seem to be about bachelors. And there you see that, wondering, is it worth committing to the society? You should do your part as a husband and father. Well, for what? They're not quite sure. And that indeed has to do with why they are open to other temptations. How are you going to reconcile yourself to your mortality? Be part of the order of the generations, all right? Well, they don't want to. And that then opens them up to catastrophe. Or it can be, as you said, you know, if you think about Psycho, you could say it's a story about this woman who wants to get married and the American society is just conspiring against her. The emasculation of men, divorce laws, sexual harassment at work, all sorts of problems emerge in the first 15 minutes of Psycho, in repartee, in idle chatter, that reveal that this woman cannot have her place in the order of the generations as she would wish it. And then that leads to a catastrophe. When you then go from male to female-led noirs, you also see this new social order we've been considering where it's up to this woman She thinks at least to do justice, or indeed not justice, but therapy. She has to tend to care for somebody. She is not so interested in the punitive side of justice or in restoring the moral order. She's worried about this, you know, will no one think of the children? (laughs) But that would seem to be uh, one aspect of things. The other aspect is that this is a society where women are far more public than they had been ever before. Correspondingly, the public has an odd character, since you can imagine bachelors in a society much more easily than spinsters, since the society does depend on people. Of course, there's a kind of solution to this. You can't have a society of women middle managers and then import the children through immigration. There you see nature popping up in the political problem. you got to maintain the public identity of the new successful career women, but then that leads the society to a natural catastrophe that can be bought off or maybe at least delayed by importing strangers which in a way fits, right, since children are also strangers in a certain sense. And nevertheless, you ask yourself, okay, let's write a new kind of noir and have this protagonist female. As I said before, it seems like the major temptation is to make it into a revenge story, because at least then there's something for women to do, take down the patriarchy, whatever last vestiges of you can scrounge up. This movie seems to be a braver attempt to at least say, okay, what would the life of a single woman be? Somebody who is not defined by being the mother of, the wife of somebody else. What would she be in herself? Well, what? I mean, what's left? At least in basic instinct, the crazy lady is a right because writing is tied up with deception. It is tied up with seduction. It is something that women are better at in a certain sense than men. In that case, that is emphatically tied up with eroticism, since tales as much as children, as much as erotic love, although in different ways, point to our need for immortality or longing for a kind of completeness. But in this other situation, it seems everything has been replaced by a kind of boring nihilism. I'm baffled. (laughs) I just remembered this motif. You know, so we have this character who um, starts out, you know, she's kind of gender ambiguous, right? We begin with this kind of bizarre lesbian seduction, and then which is integrated into this whole heist scheme. So point I'm getting at is then she kind of accidentally adopts this other identity, right? She has this double who it turns out is a woman whose husband and child have died in an accident. So she sort of accidentally finds herself adopting this role of this completely different woman who's in a sense the opposite of her. 
she's kind of this classically noir masculine woman, right, who's tricking and deceiving men for monetary gain. She suddenly finds herself in the position of the bereaved young widow in this this tragic accident. And then as a result of this, she becomes the wife of the diplomat under this assumed identity, which again goes back to this kind of splitting and multiple personalities sort of phenomenon in De Palma's films. So she is deceiving him as to who she is, but at the same time, she's not sort of swindling him like she did her partners in the heist. But at the same time, she doesn't have a child. As the film develops, you know, she still has this kind of free agent status. It's an odd film in that it kind of rehearses her occupying both of these positions and then opting for this middle position, which then is is kind of the source of the drama of the latter half of the film. But it's an interesting one because it, you know, it's about this chameleon-like female character who can kind of occupy all of these different roles, including the role that seems like the opposite of the femme fatale role. Yeah, you're right. This is what's most fascinating about the movie. In Femme Fatale, De Palma shows you that there's somehow way more mutability, way more flexibility in female identity than in male identity. And of course, it has a lot to do with the fact that it's more private and less public. Since in a certain way, the Femme Fatale identity is a criminal on the run from police and criminals alike. That's also not public activity, even if it's the underworld. That flexibility also brings up this question of choice. Does this woman have any choice as to what way of life she will live? Is the switching between identities merely play-acting? Or does it involve something deeper? And as you say, she tries on this identity, she faces certain choices, and the drama of the movie is about what is it that this woman will learn? Or, in a way, how to reconcile herself to law and order, how to reconcile herself to a moral order of society. It's a very good movie. I recommend it. Everybody watch it. If you like it, you'll watch it a couple of times and it'll dawn more on you how involved this question is. Can you think your way out of legal problems and out of the fundamental legal problem of uh, violence and punishment? It seems like the woman accepts some kind of arrangement of justice and therefore also limits on behavior and therefore limits on identity. Because of this combination of two strange facts, on the one hand she's a criminal, on the other hand she gets to choose another identity, it seems like an entire world of possibilities opens up, but that thing cannot last. The way of life has to be reasserted. We're stuck with being human, you can't keep trying on different roles. So a radical change of identity after identity, which is fashionable in some way nowadays, is dismissed because it's nonsense. But then when you ask yourself, okay, how do you deal with this problem? As you said, on the one hand, she's a criminal, that's some kind of breach of the moral order, but on the other hand, there's this other woman whose family was wiped out in an accident. That is to say, that's a kind of natural evil, not a human evil. It was not done by intention, it just happened. And that is the commonality. They do not distinguish the moral from the immoral, the lawful from the unlawful, and therefore they bring out this possibility of multiple identities and what kind of person should you be. This woman does not have a kind of moral conversion Her understanding of her new situation is primarily that it's an act, and she doesn't have to take it seriously. That is to say, at heart, she still thinks that it's better to be a criminal, to have a very distant relationship to justice, and primarily as a deceiver, right? She plays roles. She learns that that's not smart, that deception can never fully overcome violence, which would also mean that a story... Deceptions are always stories, cannot ultimately replace deeds. Even a mastermind will eventually figure out the limits of mind and mastery. And she is a mastermind, a spectacular character, but still there's a kind of self-awareness in this woman so that her adventure is interesting. How does she realize that it might be better to be a woman than to be a mastermind? It might be better to settle into a way of life that's part of justice than to be shape-shifting, identity-swapping, post-modern, you know, as you said, androgynous creature. And so that femme fatale, you could say, is a story about becoming an individual, discovering who you are and figuring out a way of life, as opposed to these later versions where the female drama, woman is unsettled in our society, turns to some kind of revenge against the patriarchy, as though the problem were that there exist men. The oddity of Femme Fatale is that the level at which it arranges the story suggests that this woman is of incredible astuteness. 
Most people just don't have those kinds of qualities. They are not that fast on their feet. They are not that sharp. They don't think that far ahead. They don't have that kind of imagination. This woman is rehearsing in her mind these possibilities of endless shape-shifting of identities in the postmodern setting and then rejecting this possibility. But that's not something for most people. So it's set at a much higher level than most noirs where the protagonist, male or female, is not a cut above. It's unusual, more interesting in some sense, I suppose, than the ordinary person, but not a cut above. It's as if she, she has this one moment where she can perform an ethical act, which is the sort of bizarre further twist where it turns out she's been dreaming the whole thing. And then she's able to prevent her doppelganger and sort of opposite from killing herself, knowing that she can thus grant her the life that she thinks she would be better suited to, which is marrying the diplomat. She's kind of able to find an ethical grounding in that moment where she gives something that she sees as more appropriate to this, even though she would benefit more from escaping in this moment. She instead sacrifices that possibility of escape to this alter ego doppelganger figure who is precisely not a shapeshifter, um, someone who wants to be a wife and mother and who has lost that by accident. This is kind of her moment of an almost ethical conversion. This also seems to coincide with her accepting her role in life as continuing to be a sort of thief and shapeshifter. <laughs> the sequence where her sort of hapless um, accomplices <laughs> are killed off before they can get back at her for double-crossing them. It's like there's the weird thing with the necklace that she leaves in the truck, and then it reflects the light in precisely such a way as to blind the driver, thus causing another accident. But in this case, it's a kind of providential accident. Um, you know, so in terms of justice, right, there's like... This way that her, her ethical act of granting this life that she could have had to this other means that she can get away with her initial kind of double crossing. Yeah, that's a good point. That On the one hand, she saves this other young woman who is her complement, who is like herself in every way except character. And because she saves this life, her own life turns out to be saved in return. That is to say, in some sense, she seems to be saving herself in an indirect way. And you're also right that when she imagines what her life would be if she were willing to commit the sacrifice, so to speak, let this other woman die, she wants to be in control of everything. And it turns out that you can't be in control of everything. Eventually, some of the loose ends get at you. Whereas in this other situation, she doesn't try to be in control of everything. And chance is in her favor rather than against her. And to some extent, that's true. If you have a compulsive view of controlling things, then yeah, chance can only emerge as something screwing up your plans. That part is true. But then there is this other side. As you say, there's something damn providential about this sort of thing, which is very storified. In stories, these things work out. Of course, we don't change our lives because we don't believe in reality. These things work out. There's something very odd about that conclusion. Maybe it has to do with the fact that, as you say, she retains this odd status of being beyond the categories of the social order. You could say that she learns to behave as though she were not. And it seems like maybe that's required if you're going to survive this kind of noir story. Otherwise, you know, it doesn't work out that way. If you're involved in one of these terrible conflicts like vertigo or psycho or what have you, you end up dead or crazy. That would seem to be precisely because, as I said, these protagonists are not a cut above. They're largely ordinary people, but they're extraordinary in some sense case of Vertigo, for example, Scotty wants to be chief of police, it turns out. His young lady friend who hopes he would love her, but she's just, she's not much of an erotic attraction. She makes fun of him for his ambitions. Turns out he has quite a political ambition, this dude. And that somehow is tied up with the fact that he is in love with the old, romantic, even pre-American past of San Francisco. The woman, the architecture, all of this stuff. You know, has an exalted vision of the beautiful that seems to dominate him, and it simply does not correspond at all with his situation, with his limits. And that, I take to be the meaning of his vertigo. He aims to scale the heights, but he is not fit for it. Whereas the strange young woman in Femme Fatale is capable of dealing with this. Hence her remarkable power of foresight. Yeah, and she's notable in, as obviously somebody who's part of this kind of lineage of the genre, but at the same time, you know, her subjectivity is not 
fundamentally constructed in relation to some male who's her victim. And it's not that she doesn't perform that role, but it's that she's actually depicted in terms of her sort of independent, free-floating subjectivity, right? Rather than in relation to this kind of anxious male counterpart who's in some way betrayed by her. It is an interesting attempt to do something with a genre that takes this kind of figure, right, this kind of mercurial, hypersexualized female shapeshifter, but kind of depicts her agency on her own terms rather than in relation to male agency. That's more the perspective of the film, but at the same time, as I think you're saying, kind of reveals the limitations of that agency. Yeah, that's also true. There is, of course, a kind of a male noir protagonist played by Antonio Banderas, a photographer who's trying to play knight on his motorcycle, but he turns out to be inadequate in several ways. On the other hand, she does have a female accomplice, a friend whom she saves also. There's something about female solidarity of a kind. And of course, it seems like you could say, well, all right, it's a metaphor for a certain version of female liberation. She sees a version of herself go on with the ordinary life of success, a woman who wants to marry a successful man and live a successful life. For herself, however, she chooses a certain version of liberation where she only has this female friend who is also a hot supermodel. You wonder what exactly uh, that life would be since the only thing that she seems to be really good at is planning things or thinking things out. One doesn't see this often, but that's my guess, that uh, what you see that woman there is an image of Brian De Palma. Perhaps people don't think of the director as female, but I think he makes a very good case in that movie. As we're saying in the revival of noirs in the 80s and 90s, the sorts of scripts written by Joe Westerhazy like Jagged Edge and Basic Instinct and Jade and a bunch of other one of these Mickey Spillane of the 80s Hollywood. <laughs> there you do see that question of female emancipation emerges. That This is not a social order that can depend anymore on a separation of private life and public life where men, of course, have to get to work, but the women will deal with the family and with whatever community affairs are of more private private character. Instead, you have adventurous women, and this doesn't just lead the men into trouble because they don't know how to deal with this new situation, but it leads the women into trouble since it seems to encourage them in rejecting traditional gender roles or the sort of stuff that the phraseology of our academian bureaucracies, what they find is terrible parts of human nature that they were not aware of, but that they are in certain ways attracted by. These new, strong, independent women are certainly, in some sense, strong, but they are not independent. They, are, they end up in the thrall of passions and pursuits that are crazy, dangerous, destructive stuff. So you could say that maybe that's why the genre had to go away. It does not fit a society where the reliable form of success is attributed to women rather than men. And of course, you know, the corporate office as much as academia are simply not fit for women to have this sort of Euripides, Bache, crazy <laughs> stuff going on. It's just not acceptable. Not allowed to think or talk about women in this way. And above all, women are not allowed to think or talk about this part of being female. It would not lead to social harmony and the peaceful transition to a world of middle-class management. If you were to look at that problem, how are women going to be liberated, Femme Fatale is one of the few movies that deals with this very successfully. On the other hand, the more famous movies, and we should say, by the way, a lot of these 80s erotic thrillers were incredibly successful movies that got Oscar nominations that made hundreds of millions of dollars. Basic Instinct, that is the most famous now, or as you're saying, Fatal Attraction. Or Michael Douglas seems to have been in a bunch of them because that's the kind of actor he was, like the one with the Moore disclosure. Michael Crichton made that one. The genre was kind of spread around, but there was also Sea of Love with Al Pacino and Ellen Barkin. That's a story I recommend. He's a washed-up cop, and there's this thing that maybe there's a female serial killer out there seducing men through the singles ads and leading to some kind of kinky murders. There you see a story about a guy who has been divorced and abandoned by his wife who married one of his colleagues. He's a loser drunkard and he has to go dating now, you know, for the job. But he's not ready for this new world of emancipated women. He's a middle-aged man who is over the hill and feels that he's such a loser and he has to deal with women in erotic context and he is not ready for it. So you see these anxieties, not just because of the social changes, but how that social change comes about. Divorce, the divorce generation of America. 
In some of the movies, this comes up more clearly. In others, it's just part of the background of the new freedom, which means that everybody involved assumes in advance that there's no stability to erotic affairs. They might ruin you or make you happy, but the only thing you can bet on is fickleness. You have to somehow embrace that craziness. I think, again, you see why that was rejected as public form of storytelling, as pop culture reference for the new society. In some sense, it's strangely preferable, apparently, to have a very sexless, very unerotic society than to deal with the fickleness of Eros. Well, Jeff, this was a wonderful conversation. We have to talk sometime about some more De Palma movies or do another podcast on Outsider Theory. It's always nice to talk to somebody who's as passionate about De Palma as I am. (laughs) Yes, there's not enough of us, unfortunately, but we have to do our best. It was wonderful chatting and, you know, let's make time and do this again in another month or so. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks so much. All the best. Bye-bye.